Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. As a new era of anti-ESG emerges, food and beverage businesses that set ambitious goals to reduce their environmental footprint or improve the livelihoods of workers across the value chain or even diversify leadership and enhance their accountability, could find themselves stuck between a rock and a hard place. On one side is mounting legislative and social pressure on investors to pull back ESG funding, on which many companies rely to meet publicly stated environmental, social, and governance goals. On the other are consumers who increasingly want to support companies with strong ESG values and who are actively shunning those without. So what are businesses in an industry with notoriously slim margins and little financial or social wiggle room to do? According to Paul Snyder, the Executive Vice President of Stewardship at Tillamook County Creamery Association, they need to hold the ESG line. By pulling out their ledgers and proving how doing good is good for business, and then they need to follow through on their commitments. Recognizing that this may be easier said than done, Snyder shares in this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast how Tillamook is making good on its ESG promises, the business benefits it's delivering, and what the company, as well as the larger industry, still needs to help meet goals with fast-approaching deadlines. So for Tillamook, a 114-year-old dairy cooperative and certified B Corp, Snyder says caring for people and the planet was a foundational value long before the trendy term ESG was coined, which makes it easier for the company to stand up for its beliefs, even as the culture roar around wokeness takes aim at ESG more broadly. Since its founding, our farmer members uh, have not only produced fantastic milk, which we convert into delicious cheese and ice cream, but they've really been leaders in their community here out on the Oregon coast when it comes to supporting the economic vitality of the local area, when it comes to shepherding um, the local ecosystem, because, of course, that's not only something that they feel is the right thing to do, but they need the land and the ecosystem to work well for their farms. Um uh, through to you know the, the welfare of the cows uh, and and really inspiring the consumers with great products. So you know, they, they, that's really how they've acted since the beginning of the cooperative. They've really had a stakeholder mentality. Now in 2017, uh, in in at the end of a lot of work, they decided to go ahead and just sort of codify that stakeholder approach to the cooperative's business in what's called our stewardship charter. Um, and that's one of the reasons I feel so proud to work for these farmers and for this cooperative because you know, years before, you know, anybody, you know, in the think tanks or anywhere else was really, really starting to think about the shift from shareholder to stakeholder, our board voted into effect this charter which directed management uh, to say you have six stakeholders that you need to think about when making decisions about our business. And they are our cows, our farms, our community, our employees, our customers, and our ecosystems. So right there, 
in its direction to management as a policy, they've directed us to take into account the local ecosystem and the environment. Um, and so what we're doing is, quite frankly, not a new thing. You know, ESG is, is a new term for something that a lot of companies have done for a long time, including ours. Uh, and, yeah, right now there's this anti-ESG movement, and I'm just going to say it's totally ridiculous. And here's why. Um, what <clears throat> these, uh, these advocates of anti-ESG are saying is that by taking into account things like the environment, societal issues, and governance, uh, you're upending uh, the true mission of any company, which is to make money, that all we should be thinking about is making money. But the fact is is that if you don't take those things into account, you lose money. You don't preserve value and don't actually opportunistically grab new avenues of value. Um, every report that's been done out there um, on looking at companies, you know, that have got a high index or commitment to ESG versus not, show that the ones that have ESG as part of their strategy and as part of their focus, they outperform all of the companies financially. Uh, because ESG, quite frankly, is a new term, and really what it's about is long-term strategic risk management. That's what ESG is. We're managing the risks to our business that are presented by the environment and client change. We're managing the risks to our business that are presented by societal issues, and we're managing the risks to our business that are presented by governance issues. Um, and again, when you do that well, you perform better. Bain did an analysis that showed that ESG leads to higher margins by about 3%. So you are more profitable if you actually focus on ESG. McKinsey did a study that showed that um, if the companies that actually considered ESG as part of their strategy and their execution had a lower cost of capital by about 10%. Um, and MSCI, which is, MSCI is, you know, is a, is a publicly traded financial advisory firm. Um, and they came out with a report that said that companies with high ESG ra ratings exhibit above market valuation and profitability. So, you know, the idea that, um, that by being anti-ESG you'll have better financial returns or that by actually focusing on ESG you are somehow providing a headwind to your financial returns is ridiculous. The exact opposite is true. The anti-ESG advocates are just using ESG as a proxy political war. Um, and quite frankly, for us here at Tillamook and for a lot of our colleagues, both within the industry and other practitioners of ESG strategies in any sector, we're just we're continuing with our business. We're going to let the, the, the fight and the screaming that's happening in the political arena go ahead and, and happen. We're to, we're, we've settled down to work to manage the long-term risks to our business for the benefit of all of our stakeholders. One of the best ways that Snyder says companies can defend ESG goals as a business priority in the current culture war is to transparently document their intentions, progress, and the impact of that progress on the company, something Tillamook does annually when it publishes its stewardship report. One of the things that, quite frankly, destroys a lot of value for shareholders and stakeholders is when a company doesn't run itself well. All you have to do is to look at companies like WorldCom or Enron or even here, most recently, First Republic Bank. Um, uh, and so governance issues, which fundamentally are about uh, transparency, policy, um, and, and values, you know, those, are the, those things can endure over time in such a way that preserve value. And in the absence of those things, value is destroyed. So 
for ourselves as a cooperative, you know, our our board is made up of our members. So our members go from their tractors and their fields and their dairy barns, and they come right into our boardroom here in our headquarters. Um, and so what that means for us is that <clears throat> the people from a governance perspective that are making the decisions long-term about this business um, are thinking about things not to service a quarterly dividend or even an annual report, but they're thinking about the next 114 years of this business, just like they're fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers thought about this business back generations previous. So the way that we work um, as a cooperative and the way we govern ourselves as a cooperative is really for the long term founded on values very much with an eye towards understanding that we are members of this community here in Tillamook. We're members of the community here in Oregon and across the country. And we have values. We have ways that we think businesses should operate that we hold ourselves to account. We call it dairy done right. Um, and we're very, very transparent about those things. And that's why, for instance, just within the stewardship function that I have the privilege to lead, you know, we issue a stewardship report every year. We have for the last four years that shows where we're doing well, where we're a little bit behind. Um, uh, because the first and foremost thing that happens with good governance is you've got to actually let people know how you're doing. Um, you don't have to be perfect. People are human. They understand that companies are run by human beings. Uh, but what they do want you to do is to tell the truth. And Within the spirit of transparency and accountability, Tillamook County Creamery Association earlier this month published its 2022 stewardship report, in which Snyder says the co-op joined the Innovation for U.S. Dairy Stewardship's commitment to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 and set an interim goal of 30% reduction in its absolute emissions by 2030. If, if we don't manage uh, the way that we interact with our ecosystems and our environment, both locally and, of course, globally, then value will be destroyed for our cooperative. So our farmers could go out and they could just do whatever they want to the fields in terms of uh, you know, the way they manage their fields to the maximum profit for today. But they know that if they do that, that they're actually destroying value in the future. Uh, and so they've always taken care of the land. They've always taken care of the rivers and streams uh, here in Tillamook County. Um, they've always thought about how does our business interact with the land because their business is so dependent upon the land um, and the environment. So for them, uh, having a commitment to net zero by 2050, which we have joined in partnership with so many others across um, the industry in dairy, it was made, made sense. And for them, when um, we discussed what an interim goal might be that would help sharpen focus around getting on that glide path to net zero by 2050, and because they are businessmen and women that run multi-million dollar dairy operations, they understand the need for having key performance indicators that let you know whether you're delivering, whether you're on track. And that's why uh, they agreed to adopt a 30% reduction in our absolute greenhouse gases by 2030. Um, uh, it is their recognition of both uh, the need uh, to have rigor around our commitment to enduring ecosystems, and quite frankly, they wanted people to know that we're serious about this. So we're about a year in uh, to delivering on that goal. We're going against a 2020 baseline. Uh, we're doing very well, as you can see um, uh, in our latest ver version of our stewardship report. 
Uh, we are within the glide path uh, to get to the 2030 goal uh, and then to the 2050 goal. But there is a lot of work still to be done. Um, uh, but we've already started to execute a number of things that we're, we're awfully proud of and are starting to deliver. We did a, um, a transition of our fleet from conventional diesel um, uh, to a renewable diesel, um, and that has worked incredibly well. Um, that actually uh, has lowered um, our GHG emissions by about 60%, uh, especially with our truck fleet. Um, and we've got some things that are going on in plants with regard to switching boilers from propane to electric, um, food waste strategies that we've got out at our Boardman facility in Central Oregon, um, stuff that we're doing on farm with regard to regenerative agriculture, uh, and with regard to some grant monies that we've grabbed from the federal government uh, to do some repairing restoration. So, you know, I would say that to use sort of a baseball analogy, we're sort of like in the first or second inning, um, and things are going well, but it's going to be a very long ball game, and we've got an awful lot to do. And while we can look ahead and, and see who's going to be pitching and catching and batting for, you know, the next couple of innings, you think about, you know, the later innings, seven, eight, and nine, um, we know that there's some unknowns there, and we're prepared for that. We're prepared to manage through that ambiguity, um, and I would be the last one to tell you I know exactly how we're going to get to that 2030 goal. I don't know exactly how we're going to get there. Uh, but what I do know <clears throat> is that we have a pathway to get there with a number of different strategies that we can execute in order to deliver on the ambition that was endorsed by our board. Like many packaged food companies, Tillamook has focused many of its environmental efforts so far on elements that it can control, so those within Scopes 1 and 2. But Snyder is planning ahead for Scope 3, which includes emissions from activities and assets outside of the company's direct control, but which indirectly affect its value chain. Now, he acknowledges that tackling Scope 3 emissions can feel daunting, but he explains there are several tailwinds that help make them more manageable, and there are partnerships through which companies can work together to share the burden and speed progress. First and foremost, my scope three is somebody else's scope one and two. That's true for every single entity scope three. So the fact is, is that these pressures and opportunities around addressing your scope one and two emissions are on everybody's plate. Now, people are addressing them in varying degrees, but the fact is, is that everybody is under the same, the same trends that they have to manage. So the fact is, is that there's, there are people working on my scope three because they're working on their own scope one and two. So there's that, number one. Number two, the grid, all of the grids, electric, gas, others, are greening themselves. Um, uh, don't mean to say that they're just greening naturally. I'm saying they're themselves taking efforts in order to green um, and become uh, more climate friendly. So that is good both for my scope two, but also my scope three's scope two. Um, and so those are some tailwinds that are going to help us. You know, when, when I think any of us, when we first get a, get a look at our carbon footprint, and then you look at your scope three and you go, you know, oh my gosh, what am I going to do about that? That's a huge number. It's huge for us. It's 97% for us. Um, we also have to realize that there are people working on that number that we'll never meet. There are people working on that number within the scope three that um, you'll never interface with. You'll never know what's going on. But the fact is, is that scope three is going to improve right before our eyes because they're working on their scope one and two and because the grid is green. Now, 
Having said all that, it's still a really daunting task because it is outside your control. And there we're essentially going to get to partnerships. Ultimately, we are going to be able to address or have to address our scope three emissions by instituting deeper uh, and more numerous partnerships with those that are within our scope three so we can work on them collaborative, collaboratively. Um, and hey, I think that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, the, the final sustainable development goal is, you know, collaboration, because nobody's going to be able to do this within a silo. So for us, what does collaboration look like? Well, we're somebody else's scope three as well as we've got scope three ourselves. Um, we actually just announced last week a pilot project with New Seasons Market. They're a grocery chain here in the Pacific Northwest, um, and they're a great partner to us in terms of distributing our cheese and ice cream. And what we're doing is they're helping fund um, some riparian work on our own farms, which should improve or will improve our carbon footprint. Um, it's called an insetting program. Uh, it's where you actually invest somewhere in your value chain to improve carbon performance. And the cool thing about it is that, therefore, the entire value chain's carbon performance is improved. Everybody gets to benefit. So unlike a carbon offset, where only one person gets to keep the carbon performance, an inset, everyone within the value chain benefits. Um, and so that's a partnership. That's a partnership in terms of the programmatic execution. That's a partnership in terms of the funding. And so those are the types of things, partnerships like insetting and other types of strategies that are ultimately going to get us where we need to get with regard to scope three. To fully manage scope three emissions, most food, beverage, and agricultural players also will need funding, which Snyder acknowledges is a significant challenge to obtain in the current economic environment. But he adds, help is on the way. Funding's a big challenge. Uh, we're in a super inflationary environment right now as a country, but I will also tell you that agriculture in general and dairy in specific are experiencing historically high sustained input costs with regard to feed, um, labor, um, and all sorts of other things um, that, you know, are making what is already a very, you know, very challenging business um, that takes a lot of talent um, and a lot of hard work on the behalf of our farmer owners to navigate and to run profitable businesses. Um, you know, it's just gotten very, very tough recently. So funding is a challenge. At the flip side, there's a lot of money out there that's been earmarked for environmental projects. But what I would say is it's far away from the ground right now. So whether it's the billions of dollars that's part of the Inflation Reduction Act, or whether it's the billions or trillions, however you want to count it, of the green investable capital that banks and investment funds and pension funds and everybody else that we want to invest in, in green technologies, you know, most of it, the grand swath of it hasn't come close to being deployed yet because we've got this challenge of helping the people that are in charge of those investable dollars, whether it's the government or private industry, to understand, you know, what is it like to do an agricultural environmental project? Now, having said that, a lot of them are happening already. I don't mean in any way to imply that there aren't some awesome projects happening. There's a lot of good work going on um, around a rec system uh, for dairy. There's a lot of good work going around about digesters um, where we can actually process the manure that comes from our farms. We pull the methane out and then return the manure back for natural fertilizer for dairy lands. And then the methane can either be used to power on-farm operations, or it can be sold to the natural gas grid. There's lots and lots of stuff happening, but it's not quite at 
scale yet. And when you look right now at agriculture and the food system's proportion contribution to global greenhouse gases and compare that uh, percentage against where have the invested dollars gone, um, we are about half of our, of our weight average in that. We're getting about half the money that we should get um, on the food side right now. So much of it is going towards power generation um, and mobility, which, you know, makes sense. Um, that's the stuff that's right out there and that really touches people most immediately in their lives. That's why they're buying Teslas and uh, get putting sun, uh, solar panels on their roofs of their homes and stuff like that. But the fact is that that's a huge challenge. We've got to get those investable dollars, the ones that have been earmarked for environmental projects, into the ground, into, the, into deployment. Um, and, that's, and that's right now, it's just a challenge. It's a challenge we're going to work through. I'm highly confident we're going to get there. There are already a lot of players out there in fintech who are trying to figure out how do you make a market where you bring the investable dollars with the agricultural-focused uh, environmental projects. So we're going to get there, but right now that's a, that's a pretty big challenge. Ever the optimist, Snyder says that he believes that tectonic advances in an innovation will also help companies grappling with Scope 3 and other ESG challenges. I think there is a wave of innovation coming with regard to the environment that is going to be tectonic. You know, we've gone through so many years where the, you know, the super smart folks that think about disruptive technologies and disruptive practices and all the rest of it, you know, I don't know that they were really thinking very much about the environment. They were thinking about other stuff and that's fine. Um, but I think as people come to appreciate more and as institutions come to appreciate more, the challenge we have in front of us with regard to the climate, there's going to be more attention, more funding, more effort, more resource uh, deployed into the battlefield to address climate change. And I mean, I just, I'm very excited at the technologies that are going to come that I can't even conceive of now. There's some technologies that sound really promising that I'm super interested to hear um, how they uh, pan out. So, for instance, a lot of people are talking about seaweed as a feed additive in dairy as a way to mitigate methane. Um, and there are some people out there that says that it's, it's, an, amazing, um, it's an amazing tool for, for essentially mitigating carbon from a dairy farm. Um, that sounds super exciting and promising. Of course, I want to know, we all want to know, my farmers uh, that I work for want to know that, A, seaweed in the, as a feed additive doesn't um, negatively impact cow health, that seaweed as a food additive doesn't negatively impact the quality of our milk, um, you get those two things, you know, uh, sort of confirmed, and then you get down to can we afford it, uh, and then you get down to does it really mitigate uh, GHGs uh, as some seem to think. You know, that's really exciting to think about just how transformative something like that could be if all those questions are answered. Um, but, again, that's a, that's a technology that has already contemplated now, having said that, I want to be very clear, which is there's also a bit of a debate within the environmental community is, well, let's not think about how much GHGs we're putting out there. Let's just focus all on ways to get rid of the GHGs that we're producing. Um, and so it seems sometimes like there's two camps, the camp that's like, well, we have to actually get our emissions down to 
hit zero. And those are saying, no, we don't. We'll figure out ways to mitigate carbon once we have emitted it. Um, you know, my answer to that debate is, why not pursue both? Why isn't it either or make it an and? Um, I don't think when it comes to long-term health and vitality of our environment that we should leave any tool off the table. Um, uh, I think we need to bring every tool in the toolkit uh, to the fight. And so technologies are one, um, uh, some of which will help us emit less and some of which will help us deal with what we have admitted. And I'm excited, really excited to see what some of those ideas are as they come down the pike. Even with technological advances, funding, and partners, Snyder acknowledges that mitigating and repairing the environmental impact of the food system is undoubtedly daunting. But he encourages stakeholders to remain optimistic and to take on what they can, when they can, and know that as they near the new challenge in the future, new solutions will also arise. We have an incredibly daunting challenge in front of us. Um, We have... uh, caused an immense amount of uh, environmental and financial destruction as a result of not acting sooner on um, our impacts on the environment. Um, And we're going to be in really, really serious trouble um, in a way that is going to be incredibly disruptive and destructive for people's lives if we don't really start taking action now um, and very quickly and very meaningfully and impactfully. I don't mean to in any way minimize um, the challenge that's before us or, quite frankly, the destruction that's already been wrought. But I, but I choose to, to have hope and to be positive because I believe that we are going to do it. Um, first of all, what's the alternative? Believing that you're not going to do it is basically saying, okay, so it's all just going to spin down the drain. Um, that doesn't feel like a very motivating or engaging place to be. Second, you know, we... We are ingenious when we want to be and when we are motivated to be. We do amazing things uh, as a species. Um, When we have the sharpness of focus to say there isn't a challenge that we can't meet, there isn't a hill that we can't overcome. Um, You know, we've we've experienced things in the past where we thought were were pretty pretty unsolvable. Um, And... You know, the fact is, is that we've solved a lot of them. On that optimistic note, we have reached the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope you'll join me again next week for another installment. And to help you remember, I encourage you to subscribe. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive, profitable, and safe week.